If you'll open your Bibles with me to uh, 1 John chapter 2, and we'll continue in our study today through, uh, through the epistle of 1 John. You know, it was February 1991, 20 years ago this month, that uh, the U.S. began its ground assault in Iraq in uh, the first Gulf War. Um, hard to believe it was 20 years ago. It was a big deal. You know, Iraq had in, invaded Kuwait. They'd killed hundreds of Kuwaiti citizens. Uh, they'd raped their women. Uh, they were pillaging the town. Iraqi soldiers were actually going into hospitals and shooting patients. They were unplugging incubators and leaving the babies in them to die. I mean, it was a, it was a horrible atrocity what they were doing. And, um, you know, our country said, no way. You can't do this. We're going to stand up to you. They put together a, a coalition of almost 40 nations. Uh, and uh, on January 16th, 1991, the, the first of over 100,000 air sorties was launched uh, against the forces of Iraq and Kuwait. 39 days later, it was February 23rd, 1991, the ground offensive began. And what was astonishing to me at the time was that there was actually people who would oppose what we were doing. There was over 75,000 people who marched in Washington to oppose what we were doing there. Um, among them uh, was a mother who was interviewed by the local news. And uh, in her comments, among other things, she said this. She said, my son didn't join the Marines to fight in a war. He joined to get an education. And, and I, you know, God bless this mom. I appreciate her. Her boy's going to war, and she's worried about that. And, you know, I, I, I've got kids. I've got, you know, my third grandchild on the way. I understand that heart. But at the same time, just understanding what was going on, I, I, I jumped out of my seat. I'm in the living room. I'm yelling at the TV, which is, by the way, why Brenda doesn't watch the news with me. Um, and I'm yelling at the TV. I'm like, you know, lady, come on. You know, what are you, what are you thinking about? You, your son didn't join the Girl Scouts, for crying out loud. You know, he, he's not enrolled in the local community college working on his AA degree in basket weaving or whatever it is. It's not what he's doing. You know, he didn't go to DeVry or, or ITT Tech or the Bryman School. That's not what he did. He's a United States Marine. He enlisted in the Marine Corps. And... You know, good grief, lady, come on. Our country's at war. It's time to fight. And thank God that we have Marines and soldiers and, and, and all that, that are willing to go and fight. Now, I tell that story because... There's a correlation between this mother and many people in the church today. You know, there's a lot of people in our churches today who, who have this, this mindset. They're coming to church for the benefits. They're, they're involved and they've enlisted in the, the whole Christian thing because of, you know, hey, I, I can make some good friends. We can, you know, we can strengthen our marriage. They got that marriage class thing. We can go to that. Uh, you know, we uh, make some, some, some good, wholesome relationships for our kids. You know, this is kind of the, the, the thought process. And, you know, hey, they, it'll be good for us. 
And it's true, those are all the benefits of being involved in Christian community. I mean, we do have all of those things, but there is something profoundly wrong when we approach our Christian faith with a mindset that says, hey, I'm, I, I, I like all the benefits. Let's, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm enlisting for that. No, because there's something profoundly wrong with that because we are supposed to be those people that are soldiers for, for, for Christ's sake. You know, when our faith becomes self-focused and we're more interested in the benefits than we are in the battle, there's a serious problem. The Apostle Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. He said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy verses 3 and 4. He said, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, with this thought in mind, we, we come now to 1 John chapter 2 verse 14. We resume where we left off, where the apostle uh, John says this. He says, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, I mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago. That word overcome, it's the Greek word Nike. Uh, It's a military term because it literally means to conquer. That's what this word means. Now, like it or not, guys, we are in a war. The whole world right now is in a war. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 tells us so. The apostle Peter says this. He warns us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9 begins, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, that word resist there at the beginning of verse 9, it's also a military term. It uh, is a Greek compound word, which literally means to stand against. And it's the same word that we see in Ephesians 6.13, where we're exhorted to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, there's that word, in the evil day and having done all to stand. See, here's the point. Yes, there's a lot of benefits to being a Christian. Uh, Yes, we make friends at the church and our kids are well influenced and there's a lot of benefits that we enjoy. Those are all available to us and it's it's a great thing. But our primary duty is to fight the fight of faith. Now, you know, this is the, the, the thing that, that we need to focus on. Hey, I need to fight the fight of faith. Now, this is a spiritual battle. It's not a physical battle. When I talk about fighting the fight of faith, I'm not talking about, you know, boycotting Hollywood. I'm not talking about, you know, boycotting Disney. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about the spiritual battle that is going on all around us and the battle that we're called as Christians to engage in. It's not a battle against homosexuals. It's not a battle against Democrats. It's not uh, even a battle against liberals. It's not against them. It's against the, the forces of the enemy that are at work in the world around us. It's a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
Now, guys, the object of this battle is the control of your mind. And thereby, if, if the enemy can control your mind, then ultimately he will control your life. And so we have the objective of Satan who wants to control your mind, who wants to control your life. And we have the objective of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who wants to control your mind and who wants to control your life. And this is the spiritual battle that we're in. And at the end of the day, you're either a servant of God or you're a servant of Satan. You go, well, hey, can I be a servant of myself? Well, yeah, then you're a servant of Satan. You either serve God or you serve Satan. That's how it works. Now, it's either one side or the other. And you can't serve both. Jesus said so. Matthew 6, 24, he said, No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and he'll despise the other. He says you cannot serve God and mammon. So today, every single one of us is either a servant of God or we're a servant of Satan. And there's massive spiritual warfare going on constantly, 24-7, to bring us into bondage. This is Satan's objective. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Maybe some of you who are older remember the Bob Dylan song, uh, which is, uh, you got to serve somebody, right? The, the lyrics kind of go something like this. You, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You might be a heavyweight champion of the world or a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you got to serve somebody. Uh, maybe the devil. It may be the Lord. But you got to serve somebody. And the thing is, is that all of us are serving Either our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or we serve Satan. Now, who determines or what determines who we serve? I'm glad you asked. We continue, verse 15. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, if you're a note taker, that word world in your text there, listed several times in several verses, it's the Greek word cosmos. And literally what it's referring to is the world system all around us. And so the exhortation is, don't love the world system. He's not talking about, you know, appreciating the, the, the beauty that is in our world. I mean, the Bible says that, that God reveals himself through his creation. And so, you know, the, the exhortation isn't, you know, don't love the majesty of the Grand Canyon or don't love the, the beautiful, uh, you know, grandchild that the Lord's blessed you with. It's not talking about any of that. It's talking about don't love the world system. Now, the world system, greed, covetousness, selfish ambition, violence, danger, sexual immorality, carnal lusts, drunkenness, 
revelry, an excess, deceitful ambition, dishonesty. This is the world system. And all you got to do is turn on the local news to see the world system. As a matter of fact, um, just as, as a, a st- study for, for this particular teaching, I, I went on, I, I did something I don't recommend that you do, but I went on the Billboard Top 20 just to see what are the current top 20 songs, pop songs in America. And, uh, and then I, I went and I Googled the, the top 10 television shows currently and what are the plot lines of the top 10 television shows currently. And, and wouldn't you know it, almost every single one takes its, its theme from the world system. And yet we're exhorted not to love the world. John says, hey, don't love the world. Don't love the world system because it's not of the Lord. Would you agree that there should be something different about Christians that differentiates us from the world around us? Would you agree with me? Sadly, would you also agree with me that more often than not, we're not differentiated from the world around us? I mean, seriously, I I, I ask you the question, if... uh, if you never told somebody you were a Christian, would your coworkers know it by the way that you live your life? Would your neighbors know it by the way you live your life? Let me get a little closer to home. Truly, do your kids know that you're a Christian by the way that you act around the house, by the things that you watch, by the words that come out of your mouth? We're called not to love the world. And again, the problem is that many today are calling themselves Christians, but there's nothing whatsoever about them that distinguishes them from the world around them. Several months ago, I was astonished on the news. They were interviewing uh, an adult film star, a, a girl that was involved in adult films, and she calls herself a Christian. I'm like, lady, you might want to read 1 Corinthians 6, 9. You know that? You can't engage in that and think that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Oprah Winfrey calls herself a Christian. Yet she hosts coming out on the Oprah Winfrey show. Celebrating 25 years of those who have come out and revealed their homosexuality on her show. She talks openly about there being many ways to God. She says in one of her shows, oh, it, it, just, it can't be that Jesus is the only way to God. That's too narrow. I'm like, I wish I had been there. Hey, let's just let that sink in for a minute, Oprah. Because I think Jesus said that there's a wide road that, that leads to destruction. And a lot of people take it, but there's a little narrow road. It leads to life. And there's few that find it. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. You call yourself a Christian. Yet you say that Jesus can't be the only way. There's a problem here. And, And it's not just on TV here. Let me tell you, it's not just on TV. I've been a pastor in this valley for a long time. Long time. Going on 20 years. And, I, and I'll tell you that 90% of the people that come to see me for pre-marriage counseling 
Hey, Pastor Ted, we're in love and we want to get married and would you counsel us? Yeah. Hey, can I ask you some tough questions? What are they going to say? Can I ask you a tough question? They swallow hard. They look at each other. Are you living together? 90% are living together. Hey, can I ask you another tough question? Are you sleeping together? 95% of the people that come to see me for pre-marriage counseling, hey, Pastor Ted, would you marry us? Oh, we know you. We've been coming to the church for, for a long time. Oh, yeah. You sleeping together? Yeah, I know. We shouldn't. We're, oh. And, you know, and then I'll say, hey, listen, you know, God honors obedience. And you want God to bless your marriage. So the first thing you got to do right out the gate, if you want to honor the Lord, stop sleeping together. And by the way, you got to move out. And I'll get an argument on the move out thing. They'll say, oh, you know, can't we just live in separate bedrooms? I'm like, no. Because you you can't go on a diet in a donut shop. It's not going to happen. And you've already proven that you can't keep yourself pure. And besides that, the Bible says to avoid the appearance of evil. And yet I get an argument from people all the time. Can I, can I ask you some tough questions today? Or maybe can I, can I make some tough observations? There's some of you here today. You are actively engaged right now in sexual sin. Some of you are, are in the middle of an, of an adulterous affair right now. Some of you... You're very close to it. Some of you, today, right now, you're addicted to drugs. And you're putting on a show, and you're putting on a front, and you're hoping nobody knows, and yet, you're addicted. And you know it. Some of you, it's alcohol. And you're addicted to it. And you, and you consume too much of it. Some of you are addicted to pornography. Right now. Some of you, you don't think anything about going out and having several drinks out in the community or going to Pechanga, having a lot of drinks, having, you know, gambling. Some of you did it last night. Some of you have plans to get drunk today. Hey, the game's on. You're like, oh, no, no, I'm just, we're just going to have some drinks. You know what you're planning to do. You say, Pastor Ted, you don't know that. I know that. I've been counseling people for over 15 years in this valley. And I know it. And you know it. You know it's true. And if I haven't listed your sin, you know the sin that you're actively engaged in right now that the Lord would speak to you about. And you go, well, Pastor Ted, are you saying that, that I, you know, if I've done any of these things, I'm not a Christian? No, I'm not saying that, but I'll tell you what I am saying. Jesus said that there's going to be many people who come to him, say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you. And he's going to say, you know, depart from me, because I never knew you. And I'm just challenging you today with the thought. Why did you enlist as a Christian? 
Really, truly, why do you come to church? Are you here for the benefits? Because there's a war going on right now. And if you're just here for the benefits, you're going to lose that war. Because Satan is going to lead you astray. Now, in verse 15, when John says, do not love the world, literally what it means is stop loving the world. That's the way that is formed in the, in the original Greek. He says, stop loving the world. Why does he say that? Because we struggle with loving the world. It definitely is possible For us, as Christians, saved, given our life to the Lord, to struggle with the things of the world. Why? Well, because you've got a sinful nature that you're chained to. You get saved, your old nature doesn't go away. It's just two natures that now exist. Now, you're supposed to die to the old nature and feed the new nature and live in newness of life, but the old man is constantly chained to you. And if you feed him, that's the one that's going to govern your life. And so this is why John says, hey, stop loving the world. Because you enlisted as a soldier. And yes, Jesus paid it all. Yes, the work was his to do, to to earn the right standing with God uh, for you. But if you are a Christian, if you've given your life to him, then there ought to be something different about you. There ought to be something that happens in your life. Amen? There ought to be a transformation. See, John's conveying the idea that, listen, a relationship with God should purify our values. In other words, you should have a new value system. That's what should happen in your life. The things that you used to value, you should mourn over. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to stop sinning overnight. I'm not going to say that you won't stumble and fall. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. What I am saying is that you should see a change in your value system. A couple of weeks ago, um, after my grandson was born, um, Brenda was encouraging me to, to go into the closet to dig out all the old photo albums. And we keep all the the photo albums. They're they're in the closet underneath the stairway. They're way in the back, and you know I just I couldn't be bothered. I had to go back. There's not a light in there. It's a flashlight and moving stuff around. I didn't want to do it. And finally, you know, it just kept on me. I want to see those pictures. I want to see those pictures. I want to see those pictures. So I pull all the pictures out, and we're going through them. And I start looking through the photo albums, and and there in all the photo albums, I I see. The, uh, the old, old photo albums from my pre-Christian days. And it's an amazing thing that, you know, a picture says a thousand words. And there, right in front of me, what I could see my new value system, and I could see my old value system. Apparently, my old value system, I valued math. I valued numbers. Uh, there were lots of pictures of four by fours, lots of pictures of 12 packs, lots of pictures of 12 gauges. You know, <laughs> this was my old value system. But after I got saved, the pictures changed. 
And so now I'm seeing a new value system reflected in the pictures. There's, there's, there's pictures of, of baptisms and family and, and, and pictures of church and, and just all of these new pictures that, that, are, that are coming up. Now, there's still some pictures of 4x4s and 12 gauges in there, but the sinful component was gone. I had a new value system, and it was reflected in the, in the, the snapshot, the pictures In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, the Apostle Paul says this, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I'm asking you, what do you need to put away today? What does the Lord want you to put away? And you know what? I trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. And that thing that you're arguing with right now, saying, no, I don't have to put that away, do I? That's probably exactly the thing that the Lord would have you to put away. Now, you say, Pastor Ted, that's great. You know what? I do need some victory in my life. And I do have stuff that I need to put away. I know that I have stuff that I need to put away. How do I do it? I'm glad you asked. Look again at verse 16. Because John says this, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. You see, right there in John, First uh, John 2.16, John defines the world system for us. And we see that it's driven by three things. It's driven by the lust of the flesh, it's driven by the lust of the eyes, and it's driven by the pride of life. And what you need to understand is that this is Satan's game plan. It's the only play in his book, and he plays it over and over and over again. Why? Because it works. Works like a charm. Consider, for, an, for instance, Genesis 3.6. Now, we'll put it up on the screen for you, but let me set it up. You guys, most of you know the story. Satan is tempting Eve, and he's trying to get her to go against God's commandments. And so he's attacking the Word of God. We'll come back to that. But as he attacks the Word of God, what transpires, Genesis 3.6, says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, notice the ingredients there. Good for food, lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And desirable to make one wise, and here we have the pride of life. Another example, we won't put this scripture up for you, but you can jot it down and go there yourself. Not right now, but Deuteronomy 17. Basically, God in Deuteronomy 17 is giving rules to the nation of Israel. He warned them that, hey, look, you're going to ask for a king. You're not supposed to. I'm supposed to be your king, but you're going to ask for a king. And so in Deuteronomy 17, he says, here's what your king needs to do, and here's what he needs not to do. And so he says, he shall not multiply wives to himself. Lust of the flesh. He says, he shall not multiply gold and silver to himself, the lust of the eyes. And he shall not multiply horses and chariots to himself. This is a symbol of power, which is the pride of life. By the way, Solomon did all three. Now, I think the greatest example, and we're going to turn there, is Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So if you turn there, Matthew chapter 4.
beginning in verse 1. It says this, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. You think? Now, I'm told that if you fast for 15 days, that at about 15 days, the hunger goes away. I wouldn't know. I haven't fasted for 15 days. Um, no, I, I desire to someday. I really actually want to desire, uh, I want to, to do this at some point, but I haven't. I just confess. But, but uh, physiologically, what happens is that when you fast, you're hungry for the first couple of weeks, and then your hunger goes away. And then what happens is right at about the 40th day, your hunger comes back, and it comes back with a vengeance. It's like, feed me now. And if you don't feed your body at that time, after 40 days, you die. Your appetite goes away again, and it's too late for you, and you, you, you can't be, yeah, there's no hope for you. So Jesus is at that point of, you feed me now, or you die. I mean, this is intense, physiological, intense, physical hunger this, he's going through at this point. Verse 3, now, when the tempter came to him, this is Satan, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. It's the lust of the flesh. But he answered and he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, just... Interesting observation here, you know, we see this, that, you know, what Satan is trying to do with Jesus here is he's trying to get him to use his supernatural power to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we, we see that happen, it's, it's one of the sad things that we see, there's a guy or a gal that has an incredible gift, an incredible talent given to them from the Lord... And, and they have an opportunity to use that gift for the Lord. And instead, they yield to the temptation of the flesh and they will use that gift and that ability to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I'm told that Katy Perry, who, by the way, is one of the people who has a, tong, uh, a song in the top 20 right now, she's the daughter of a pastor. She was raised in the church. And here's a gal who has incredible vocal gifts given to her from the Lord. And yet she's chosen to use those supernatural gifts given to her from God to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now a couple things to see there. One, Satan knows scripture, and he'll throw it at you, and he'll twist it, trying to to lead you astray. So it's incumbent upon us to know the word of God, so that we can't be misled when something's taken out of context, which is exactly what he's doing here. 
The other thing to notice here is just to understand what's going on here. What, what he's saying to Jesus is, look, go up on the pinnacle, you know, and if you're the Son of God and you throw yourself off, God will rescue you, and, and then everybody will, whoa, wow, look at that. How amazing is this, you know? And so there's this temptation. Hey, if, 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 you're, you're, if you're the Son of God, do this. This is speaking to the pride of life here. Jesus said to him, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And in verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Lust of the eyes. And then Jesus said to him, verse 10, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, let me submit this to you. If Satan used these three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, if this is what he used to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew who he was. If he used this on Jesus... Don't you think he'll use this on you? I mean, if you're going up against Jesus, you're going to use the biggest guns you got, right? So, of course, he's going to use this on you and me as well. It's a guarantee. What's the common denominator here that Jesus used to overcome the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? What's the common denominator? Anyone. The Word of God. He used the Word of God. To overcome, he said, each time, it is written, it is written, it is written. Lust of the flesh, it is written. God's word says this. I'm not going to yield to that lust of the flesh. It is, you know, lust of the eyes. Hey, there it is. It is written. God's word says this. I'm not going to yield to the lust of the eyes. Hey, pride of life. Hey, you know, you, you, you deserve better than that, man. No, it is written. God's word, God's word, God's word. God's word in our hearts is our greatest defense against sin. This is why in that account in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, when Satan tempted Eve, the first thing he did before he presented her with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, was that he called into question God's word. He says to her, did God really say that you're not supposed to you know, mess with that tree? And then when she answered, he said, oh, no, it's not what he said. It's not what he, he's just trying to keep you from, see, he brought doubt to God's word. And this is what he'll do in your life. And it's what he'll do in my life. David said this, Psalm 119.11, he said, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, Psalm 119, David says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Now, with that, and we'll close on this thought, turn back to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll back up again to verse 14. And John, you know, saying this, he says, I've written to you, fathers, because you've known him who's from the beginning. And he says, I have written to you, young men, he says, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And notice what happens then. And you have overcome the wicked one. 
See, we are in a battle. And these men overcame. They were victorious in that battle because the Word of God abided in them. That word abide, literally, it means to remain, to be held, to be kept. It means to last. It means to endure. And it means to do all of these things on a continual basis. It's just not a one-time thing. Abiding means just that. It means this is where we live. This is where we abide. And the Word of God abiding in your heart is what gives you the strength to overcome, to be that conqueror. Now, you go, okay, hey, I get it. I've heard this a thousand times, Pastor Ted. Okay, so that means that you're in the Word every day, right? Is that what that means? You're in the Word every day. That means you're involved in a midweek Bible study, right? If, you, if, you, if you've heard it a thousand times, if you believe that it's true, you're involved in a midweek study, aren't you? Aren't you? You're doing ba- daily devotionals? You're involved in a men's study or a women's study? Are you involved in these things? See, let me tell you this, and I, and I had occasion to tell somebody this just this week. I have been a pastor in the valley for a long time. And I have counseled thousands of people. And can I just tell you that almost always, and when I say almost always, I mean 99% of the time, when I counsel a couple who are having profound problems, they're not doing these things. Can I tell you, the people who are engaging in these things, I don't have to counsel them. They they are having victory in their life. No, they're not perfect. None of us is perfect. But the people who are abiding in the Lord and having His Word abide in their hearts, the people that are doing that, guys, they have victory in their life. And and their lives are aren't falling apart. They're not having to call the church saying, I'm desperate. Can Pastor Ted come see me right now? And we get those calls all the time. And and it's getting to the place anymore when I counsel somebody. I mean, the first question I'm going to ask is, look, are you involved in a midweek study? No? Okay, so, you know, this is kind of a contractual agreement because, you know, you're going to come to me and my end of the bargain is I'm going to give you godly counsel. And your end of the bargain is you're going, to, you're going to take heed to the counsel and you're going to apply it. Otherwise, we're just wasting each other's time, right? Okay, so if this is a contractual agreement, let's just say right up front, the first thing you're going to do, your first homework assignment is get plugged into a home Bible study for crying out loud. Start reading your Bible every day, praying together. Can you do these things? Can you commit to doing these things? Yes, we can commit. And the next week will come. It's like, did you get plugged into a home Bible study? No, you know, something came up. Did you pray together every day this week? Well, we we started to. You in the Word? I'm trying. Yeah, But, you know, you didn't miss the Office episode this week, did you? you? You watched The Bachelor, right? Am I getting a little too close to home? Guys, listen, here's the deal. We're either going to be real together, or let's just call it quits, all right? I mean, really. Let's, I want to be a place and a people that we're, that we're actually real with one another, okay? And I'm going to love you enough. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to give it to you straight. And then you can decide, hey, if you want to play the Christian game, go somewhere else. Because I venture to say there's probably a lot of churches that, that are into it. 
that'll play the Christian game. This is not going to be one of them. Okay? We're going to be in the Word. We're going to hold one another accountable. The Bible says spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Can I tell you, hiding God's Word in your heart is a loving thing and it's a good deed. We get testimonies all the time of how God is doing an incredible work here at the church. Our tagline is simply Jesus, and can I tell you, it's more than a tagline. It is simply Jesus. I could care less if you remember the name of the church, if you remember my name. I don't, I don't care any of that. What I want you to do, I want you to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we're going to teach the Word, and we are experiencing incredible testimonies coming out of the church. Uh, just over the last few weeks, several weeks, we had, we had a guy who came up to me last Wednesday night. He says, hey, Pastor Ted, I'm ready to be baptized. Now, we, we had a baptism a few months ago, and this guy, you know, hey, do you want to get baptized? No, I'm not ready to get baptized. Okay. Why does he now want to get baptized? Because Pastor Ted spins words together, and so, you know, no, it's the Word of God doing a work in a man's heart. We had three couples in the past two months. They, they came to see me. All of them said when they came to see me, we're done. I don't even know why we're here. I, I want to go down and file papers. Now they're, they're going on and, and they're staying together and they've committed to staying together because the Word of God is changing them. We had a 20-year-old, got saved last week, gave his life to the Lord, the Word of God. You've got a guy who says, hey, you know, at one time he's saying, I don't want to have anything to do with church or leadership or ever again. He's part of, of a church plant right now. He's going to go out and plant a church. Here's a guy who said he didn't want to have anything to do with church. Why? Because of the Word of God working in his life. We had a family. They're just listening to K-Wave on the radio. They're trying to change the radio station, and it kept going back to K-Wave. They're like, I don't want to listen to this, and it keeps going back to K-Wave. And so they're like, okay, I guess I should listen to this. Then providentially, they're driving by our church. They see our sign. They're like, well, I, I need a church. There's a church. You know, okay, we'll start coming. The Word of God changing. They got a hold of this, this, this person, this person's family. God changing them, radically transforming them. We've got several women in the church come from abusive backgrounds. We're talking horrible testimony stuff of what's, what they've been through. They come here, the Word of God changes their life. They're victorious. They're overcoming. Now they're establishing and they're putting together and going through training to be able to offer the the encouragement and the biblical discipleship of those who have been through the same experiences that they've been through. Why? Because we've got such a great program here? No, because we teach the Word of God. And the Word of God is changing their lives. And it can change your life. Whatever you're here today, if you'll sit under the teaching of the Word of God, if you'll commit to getting plugged into a midweek fellowship and make that and that's our agenda for you I mean we're open with it I want to see you come to church on a regular basis I want to see you get plugged into a midweek fellowship because the word of God is going to change your life and there's nothing else that can do it and no matter what you're looking to today if you will just look to Jesus Christ Jesus said if I be lifted up I will draw all men unto myself And change will come from the Lord through his word and it's through his word only that you're going to experience that. We've got several growth groups that are starting this week. Oh, here we go. This is all geared. This is a nice little pack. No, we're going through the Word. We just happen to be here, and we just happen to be starting several new growth groups this week. If you're not involved in one, change your schedule and sign up. 
There's one every night of the week. There's one every single day. Get into a growth group. This is where your life will change. This is my testimony. It's my wife's testimony. It was a home fellowship that changed our lives. Well, it was Jesus, but we met him in a home fellowship. He radically changed our lives. He'll do the same in yours. Now, if you're here today, and your life doesn't look any different than the world around you, if you were one of those ones squirming in your seat, and you're like, yep, if, if I didn't tell somebody a Christian, they'd never know it by the way I live my life. Well, let me tell you, if you need that miracle, if you need a change, if you're having struggle with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and Satan is getting the victory in that area, we're going to be partaking of communion today. And these elements represent the Lord's grace and His mercy in our life. We are called to partake of communion regularly. To do this in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And the Bible says that when we partake of this, we're not to partake in an unworthy manner, but we're to examine ourselves. And again, I can't stress enough, it's not about doing good and trying harder and what you do to earn a right standing with God. What this represents is what God has done for you. And no matter where you are today, maybe you're you're coming to communion and you're saying, thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm one of those people that Pastor Ted talked about. I've had this transforming testimony. Thank you, Lord. Communion is that time just to remember what God has done for you through Christ Jesus. If you're one of those people who say, I need a change. My life is a train wreck. I need help. We come to the Lord's communion table together celebrating what Christ has done for us. And if that's you, I would encourage you as we pray to pray, Lord Jesus, do a transforming work in me. And as I partake of communion today, Lord, I'm remembering that that you've died for my sins. You rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death, and you give to me the hope of eternal life if I will trust in you and you give to me the promise that you'll change my life, that you'll transform me. If that's you, when we pray, I pray that you would pray that prayer of dedication to the Lord and come and partake of communion because this symbolizes the transforming work that God desires to do in every single one of us. Close with this. Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. And as Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon.